Well, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm excited to meet many of you, and I, like I told a few of you, I'll do my best to remember some of those names uh, that I met along the way, um, but I've got to repeat them a few times in my own head. But I'm excited. Like I said, we came up from Tennessee. We're visiting family. My sister is over, uh, my dad, my sister over in Clay County, and my sister just had a new baby boy, so we got to come up and meet baby Levi for the first time, and we were all excited about that. Got to do a lot of baby holding yesterday. Uh, which was good. But my wife, uh, Tessa, was the one sitting over here with me. Um, and then we have three children. Elia uh, is about to turn 10 in June, so we're about to hit double digits for the first time. Nora is in the middle. She turned six back in December. And then Silas is the little guy who's about to turn three, which many of us know is so much worse than two. So, <laughs> so we're about to enter into all that fun stuff. Tessa and I have been married uh, for close to 13 years. It'll be 13 years this May. Um, but we've actually been together uh, for over 17 years. We started dating in December of 2000. Uh, I was attending school at Olivet Nazarene University up south of Chicago in Kankakee, Illinois. Uh, and by interesting, we got a supporter there. There we go. Um, I, I didn't finish from there. I actually left and didn't finish, but sorry. <laughs> I left and went somewhere else. But during that time, I was up there at school, and she was in Evansville at school, so there's this long, weird story about how we went on our first date and started dating, but I remember the first date we went on was in December over Christmas break. We decided to hang out together, and I am not going to say that it was the smoothest first date on my part. My car was broken, so my mom was going to drive me to meet her because the snow was a little thick, and I didn't want her to try to find my house, and so my mom is driving me to meet her so she can drive. And as we're about to arrive, I reached back and realized my wallet is not in my pocket, which was awesome. So I meet her up, or meet her there, and I say, hey, could we drive back to my house to get my wallet, and then we'll start this date off. And it got off to a pretty rocky start, but it went better from there, obviously, and things went okay, and uh, here we are today. Uh, but the funny thing is, is when I pulled in that day, I, I saw her vehicle for the first time. We had spent time together with friends, but I'd never actually seen her car. She drove this red Pontiac Sunfire. And on the back, she had a license plate cover that said, Can't sleep, clowns will eat me. Which I thought was a funny joke at the time. And then I realized it's not a joke at all. Like, my wife is legitimately afraid of clowns. And as a kid who grew up with parents who thought it was sweet to put clown decor in my room, I had no problem with them. I slept for many years with one hanging next to my bed. It was weird, but it was fine. It was, I don't have a problem with them. I used to wear the little outfits around Halloween time, the, the cute face paint and be a clown. The cutesy kind, not the evil, creepy, scary movie kind. And, but my wife is terrified of this idea of clowns. We were at a restaurant one time in Vincennes, and we had to walk back to this other dining area in this narrow walkway, and there's a booth here that you have to walk by, and there's a sweet elderly couple dressed as clowns making balloon animals for kids. It was a sweet thing, and she is hugging the wall and my arm, skirting this booth as much as possible to avoid being near these clowns. And I kind of laugh at it, and I say, this is such an irrational fear, because in my mind, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I understand there are scary movies and a few other things, and, uh, but clowns to me don't seem that frightening. And there she is, giving me a look. <sighs> Welcome back. <laughs> so... For me, it didn't make sense. It was irrational. Now, for me, there's lots of fears in our life that are rational. I, I look at gravity, for example. I know some of us will climb around on anything without thinking twice. My dad's one of those guys. But that's also why he's got, like, broken knees and can hardly walk and bend over these days. Because he's fallen so many times. For me, there's a healthy fear and respect for gravity that God built into us. Hey, look, 
this thing I created called gravity will hurt you. Be respectful and appreciative of it. There are these large animals like tigers and lions. If we were to be put in a cage with one, there is a reasonable and healthy fear and respect for this animal that could tear us to pieces. We are supposed to be slightly afraid of this because we, there's legitimate danger that it could cause to us. For me, the clown thing doesn't make sense. But regardless of what the fear is, rational, irrational, all of us have something we're afraid of. All of us have things that come up in our lives in these moments It's kind of like my kids in swim lessons in the summer. It comes that point, like at the end of the day every week where they go to swim lessons where they come to the diving board and they're trying to get them to jump off and somebody will catch them in the water and kind of help them swim to the side. And it's not that far. And there's someone right there willing to catch them. And yet at the same time, the fear of what I don't know, the fear of what could possibly be, whether it's rational or irrational, in that moment the fear paralyzes them. They find themselves stuck on the edge of that diving board, unwilling to take that first step to land in the pool. Even though everything seems to be okay, even though every other kid who's jumped has been okay and successfully gotten to the side, just can't bring myself to take that jump. And I think fear in our lives is this crippling, horrifying thing sometimes that keeps us from moving forward. God puts calling into our life and asks us to go places that are uncomfortable. God puts calling in our life and tells us to take steps of faith that are really quite frightening or really intimidating. And regardless of how rational or irrational the fears are, we can become paralyzed and stand in this spot stuck and unable to move. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about fear. I want to share with you probably, I, I, I'd hesitate to call it my favorite story in the Bible because Jesus is pretty awesome. Uh, but one of my top 10 maybe favorite stories in all of scripture in Exodus chapter 3 the story of Moses. But before we start to look there, if you would, join me for a word of prayer. Father, I love you, and I'm thankful for your word, and I'm thankful that it's transformed me and made me into who I am today. And I pray, Father, that right now as we look at your word and we wrestle with the passages here, that you would bring about in us a sense of understanding and trust in your presence in our life, that we would recognize that you're with us, and that we would recognize the power and strength of who you are, the power and the strength that would guide us and lead us anywhere, and the, the, the power and the strength and the presence that can protect us and, and, and do everything that's needed in the moments of our life where we need you the most. And so, Father, I pray that we would put our hope and trust in you this morning, and that as we engage with your word, it would be transformative to our lives. I love you, and it's in the holy name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So, Exodus chapter 3. Uh, you can go ahead and start turning there, and I will preface that I'm going to read out of the ESV this morning, just because that's the translation I'm kind of studying out of right now. I try to mix it up here and there uh, with my own personal study over the course of a year, uh, just to kind of learn, get different perspective. So this morning, if you don't have an ESV and you want to follow along in whatever it is you brought, that's perfectly fine. The more variety in wrestling through that that we have, the better. So it's not going to hurt. It just gives you some different perspective as you read this morning. And I'm not going to read the whole story. I'm going to kind of preface some of it. But before we get too far into the actual text, I want to give a little bit of backstory just to make sure we're on the same page because it's going to be important to putting ourselves in Moses' shoes. Obviously, this story uh, revolves around a lot of events that happened in Egypt. Now, Egypt is where God's people, the Israelites, are at this time. They are working as slaves in captivity in Egypt because, well back into Genesis, we see these stories where God takes this boy named Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, who is later known as Israel, 
the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? We, we oftentimes overlook that little name change that kind of gives us this understanding of who the Israelite people are. But Joseph was the favorite with the coat of many colors, and his brothers were angry, and they beat him, threw him in a pit, decided to sell him into slavery, told his father he was dead. And God uses this amazing line of stories to bring him into a position of power in Egypt, a position of power that protects not only the Egyptian people as he becomes the right-hand man to Pharaoh, but he also protects God's chosen people, the Israelites, as his family finally discovered that he's still alive and that he's there. And God uses these circumstances to bring his family to him so that he can protect them. It's an incredible story. But here the Israelites are living in Egypt. But sadly, the Pharaoh who had such love and respect for Joseph has died. And the Pharaoh that's now in charge doesn't really have the same affection for the Israelite people. In fact, he's scared of them. They've grown in number to a ridiculous point and he's saying oh if they realize how much strength they have they could overthrow us so we need to put them in their place we'll we'll put them in slavery we'll 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 oppress them and keep them down and in fact we're going to kill some of their sons to slow down this multiplication thing that they've got going on and so we're going to throw some of their sons into the nile river and i love this moment of the story because i just kind of in my own mind like to picture moses's mom saying okay i'll throw him in the nile but you didn't specify the rules, all right? So here she puts this basket together and waterproofs it, sticks her son in it, and places him in the Nile with his sister watching close by. And of course, Pharaoh's daughter finds this basket with this little boy, and she decides she's going to raise him as her own. And Moses' sister sees it and says, Hey, would you like me to find someone to nurse him for you? I could probably take care of that for you. So she goes and gets her own mother to care for Moses. And here, God has provided this amazing situation to protect the life of Moses. But he finds himself in this interesting situation where he's now being raised by the Egyptian culture. But he's also got one foot in his uh, Hebrew background, his Israelite background, understanding who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. These people, of these forefathers of his people. He's learning from his mother. He's being taught. He's still got a connection to his people and who he is. But he's also being raised over here. And I can only imagine the conflict and the turmoil and the the tearing at emotions as this man grows in his life. And we get to this point where Moses comes across this situation where an Egyptian is beating an Israelite. And he becomes overwhelmed with emotion. He tries to stop it. He becomes angry and he kills the Egyptian. And he looks around to make sure no one saw, and he buries the body, and in shame he walks away saying, Oh no, what have I done? And the next day he goes out, and there are two Israelites fighting, and he tries to separate them, and he says, Hey, why are you guys arguing amongst yourselves? Like, it's bad enough with the Egyptians. And they say, Who are you? Like, who are you to tell us what to do? Aren't you the guy who just killed the Egyptian yesterday? The one who was raised by Egyptians? The one who's killing Egyptians? Who are you? Like, why are you talking to us? And in this moment, two things, I think, happen that are very important for us to understand. Moses recognizes that his secret's out. People know what he's done. And at the same time, he recognizes that my people here don't really have much use or love or concern for me either. And in this moment, he realizes the Israelites don't much care for him. The Egyptians certainly aren't now that they know, and they're finding out that he's killed an Egyptian, and so he flees. He runs from the situation, and he heads out of town. And he stumbles across this, the herds of this man named Jethro, a Midianite priest. And he uh, builds a relationship through some circumstances. And here he is now married to one of Jethro's daughters, 
tending to Jethro's flocks. He's found himself a nice, comfortable existence far away from the turmoil and all the headaches and all the hurt and all the brokenness that came from the life he was raised in. And now he's got this peaceful existence caring for sheep in the quiet. Until one day he stumbles across Mount Horeb. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. And I love this encounter because, uh, starting in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet. For the place which you're standing is holy ground. Now, I can only imagine Moses has heard the stories, but we don't have any clear indication that Moses himself has had a lot of encounters at this point in his life with God and God's presence. And so understanding the stories, understanding possibly some of the backstory and the context of who God is, in this moment he recognizes the reverence that is required for this moment, the healthy respect and fear for who he's encountered. And so he falls on his face and he hides his face and he removes his sandals and he does as he's told because he's now speaking to a mighty God. And I can only imagine what's going through his mind as he's in this moment saying, what have I stumbled across? And I can only imagine how he felt after these next words. And I want you to put yourself in his shoes for a moment. Imagine you've experienced what he's experienced. You've experienced the turmoil in Egypt, and you start to hear these words from God. Then the Lord said to him in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of my people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now think about that for just a second. Hold on, who are you? Um, time out. You're sending me where? I can only imagine that the thought in his mind is, do you know who I am? Do you, like, do you have an idea of where I've come from? No one there likes me. I am the last person who's going to change Pharaoh's mind. I am the last person who's going to convince him that this is a good idea. In fact, that's what his words say in the next statement. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Like, I... I, I have no position there. I have no authority there. The fears are mounting. The, the concerns, the, oh, they want to kill me there. If I walk into that city, I'm a dead man. And yet, God says to him, don't worry. My presence will be with you. In fact, I'm going to deliver you through this because I'm going to be with you. Not only will I accomplish everything I'm sending you to do, you will worship back here when this is all said and done. In the same place, you will worship me as a response to all the things I accomplished through you. God gives him that confidence and that assurance. I'm going to be with you. Don't worry. I'm going to do the work. You just need to trust me and go. But Moses isn't done. He's still wrestling with this. He's still feeling all of this emotion and all this stuff. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is the name? What shall I say to them? I need a little more 
support here. I need a little more verification that you are who you say you are. Show me your ID, basically, right? And in this moment, God says this holy and wonderful name, I am who I am, Yahweh. Tell them I am sent you. Tell them that I am the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them that this is the person who's shown themselves to you and made themselves real to you and go to them and gather the elders and you'll talk to the elders and you'll help them understand who sent you. And then you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to request that the people be sent out into the wilderness to worship for three days. And he gives all of this instruction, all of this reassuring that I am a holy name, a name so holy that throughout the rest of Scripture and other places, you'll see different words substituted in because the people felt such reverence and respect for the name I am that they didn't even write it out. They replaced it with another word because they were afraid and fearful of even speaking God's name, this powerful name that he's being given. Confidence that the the God, the creator of all things, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is sending you. It's reassurance, right? But Moses is still struggling. He answered, but behold, they'll not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. I can tell them that you sent me. I I know that you can be with me, but at the end of the day, they're still not going to believe me that I have no reputation there. He's making more excuses. And God says, what's in your hand? A staff. Throw it on the ground. Okay? Turns into a snake. This is the point where I'm out. I'm just gone. We're back to fears. My wife is afraid of clowns. I'm done at the snake part, personally. It's not the fact that, like, if the snake's over there, we're cool. I see you. You see me. We're all right. If you're behind me and I didn't know it, I'm out. And I'm not coming back, probably. But the idea that he says, throw it on the ground. Here's this snake. Now pick it back up. No, you pick it back up. You turned it into a snake. Um, That's kind of my thoughts in that moment. But it's a whole different kind of fear. But he says, pick up the snake. And he does. And it turns back into a staff. The next thing he says is, stick your hand inside your cloak. So Moses does, and he pulls it back out, and his hand is covered with this awful disease that Moses would understand to be a very detrimental thing, that all of a sudden you're seeing a horrible, frightening disease on your hand in that moment. I can only imagine the fear and the anxiety in that moment of pulling out your hand and seeing that. He says, put it back in your cloak. He puts it back in, and he pulls it out, and it's restored. He says, not only that, but you're going to take water from the Nile River, and you're going to pour it out, and all the water is going to turn to blood. He's helping him understand, I will give you the power. I will give you the signs. My, whole, my power and my Holy Spirit, my presence will be with you. My power will be with you. And I will accomplish things that you can't even imagine. My presence will be with you and my power will be at work. And it will be evident that I am with you. He's seeing these things, but he's still nervous. Oh, my Lord, here's the problem. I, I'm not eloquent, either the past or since. Spoken, uh, (laughs) oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I relate as I try to read that verse. This moment where he is saying, God, I'm not a real good communicator. I stumble over my words. I get nervous. I fidget. I, all of the excuses to say, I'm just not going to be that effective or that great or that good. It's probably better if you send somebody else. And God says, didn't I create your tongue? Didn't I give you the breath in your lungs? Didn't I give you everything, all of the tools that you required? I'm the one who gave them in the first place. I will determine whether you're capable or not. Just go. Finally, Moses kind of lets the truth of the matter out. He says, oh my Lord, 
please send someone else. Like the fear is too much. I've made all the excuses. I've given all the reasons why I think this is a bad idea. But ultimately, when it boils down to it, my heart just says, I don't want to go. I'm fearful of what's to come. I don't want to take those steps that are required to go into that place and to do those things. I'm fearful and I don't want to. That's just scary. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And I look at passages like that and I look at this story and I think I can relate to Moses in so many ways. Where God, I feel like you're telling me to go do something. Or you've clearly said in your word and in scripture that you want me to go do something. To go and make disciples of all nations. And I say, I just don't know where to start. I don't feel like I know the Bible as well as some people do. I've heard great speakers who have eloquent speech and I just don't have those words. God, I stumble over myself. I'm, I'm scared. I'm nervous. Those people probably don't like me because they don't like Christians in general. And in our culture, you don't talk about politics or religion. And so it's easier just to stay away from those subjects. And yet God is calling us to go and make disciples. But we find it easier to sit where we are in the comfort and the security of what we know and to hope that maybe someone's attitude changes so they might come to us. Or maybe it's a relationship that's broken in our life. And God knows that in the midst of the broken relationship and the hurt and the destruction of what's happened relationally in our lives, we can't move forward. We can't have love and grace and compassion working in our hearts if we don't have the love and the grace and compassion to forgive someone in our life who's done us wrong. And therefore, we sit on that and we say, no, it's just easier not to talk about it. It's easier not to deal with it. Those conversations will get messy. They'll be scary. They'll be awful. So I'd rather not. I'd rather stay here where I'm comfortable. Can you, can you please just deal with it another way? It doesn't matter what the circumstances are, what it is God's telling us to do. We find ourselves at the end of the diving board saying, I'd just rather not. Can I, can I just walk back that way and go down the ladder and crawl in on the, uh, another way and maybe swim another way? Is there possibly another route rather than diving off the diving board? Because this is scary. God's anger built against Moses in that moment because Moses wasn't willing to trust God's presence. God says, I'm going to be with you and I promise I'll deliver you and you'll be back here worshiping. God says, here's who I am. Here's my identity. I have done all of these things for your forefathers and I will continue to do them for you. Here's my credentials. Here's my name. Know it well. Not only that, but my power is going to be at work. It's going to be evident when I send you to do something that I'm in the middle of it. If you're going by yourself, you will fail miserably. But when I am with you, everyone will know that I am with you. That snake is no big deal. I can do far better. In the midst of all that, he says, I don't have the tools. I don't know how to say things. I'll just stumble over myself and sound like a crazy person. It doesn't matter. I made your tongue. I made your speech. I will give you the tools you need. I created you. I can make you into exactly who you need to be to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Stop being afraid. And yet, whatever it is in our life, it's really hard to overcome these fears that become so fixated in front of us. It may be a silly, irrational fear of something that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, or it may be one of those very real, very scary, challenging type situations that induce a lot of fear in our lives. And whatever it is, we're kind of faced there, holding on to that, saying, what do I do with it? How do I move past this? 
That doesn't mean just run off recklessly into whatever and God will take care of it. God is specifically calling Moses. God has specifically called us in, in very, very direct ways on how to build his church, how to make disciples, how to grow and be the people we're supposed to be, how to pick up our cross daily and follow him. That's not a promise of security and safety. That's a promise of daily death to self, laying comfort aside to move forward. Not for the sake of moving forward, but for the sake of accomplishing kingdom work that God has called us to. And so the question is, what steps am I being called to take and what fears are crippling me and causing me to stand at the edge and say, no, I can't do that. I want to share a little bit about myself other than my terrible first date moments. Um, I grew up right down the road. Highway 46, take it on down into Clay County, Indiana. There's a little bitty speck on the road called Cory, um, where they hold an apple festival some of you may be aware of. I went to church in this little church there called Cory Church of the Nazarene. Um, most of my childhood growing up, I'd been to a few other churches, but I was a quiet, shy kid who had really close friends whose ear I would talk off, family members who would never say that I was quiet. When I was comfortable, I would never shut up. I would just talk and talk and talk. But whenever we met for the first time, or if you asked me to stand up here and talk to you all, no way, uh uh Speech class with like 10 of my closest friends from high school, no, I don't care. I don't want to get up and make a fool of myself. I am going to stutter, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to, I just don't feel comfortable with all eyes on me. I wasn't confident in talking to girls, I wasn't confident in meeting new people. My friends were the opposite of that. They liked to be the center of attention. They liked everybody to know their name. And I kind of joked for a long time that I was Kendall and Ben's friend. Like, that's how people knew me. They didn't even know who I was. They just knew I was a quiet kid who followed them around. And yet, at the same time, um, life goes on, and I'm kind of trying to work through that. And it was the summer before my senior year, I decided, I'm kind of tired of being Kendall and Nick's friend. Like, I wish people kind of, I wish I had some of these friends. Like, I'm spending time with them, but they have no idea who I am. So I just decided that summer, I was, I don't know what it was, I I do know what it was, but in that moment I didn't know what it was. And all of a sudden, God was like, just, just, it's not going to hurt. Just take a step out there, introduce yourself. And so I started just kind of introducing myself, saying, by the way, I'm Nick. They weren't going to tell you that, but I'm Nick. And all of a sudden I realized I was meeting people and actually talking to some of these people I'd spent all this time with and developing relationships. And I was feeling a little more comfortable, just talking to new people. And time went on, and all of a sudden, my senior year of high school hits, and God says, all right, you haven't been the Bible club president your entire time through high school, but I'm going to make you the Bible club president. Your friend Ben, who has been the Bible club president, is going to be nominated as well, but so are you. I just figured Ben needed somebody to beat, right? Instead, I got voted in, and all of a sudden, I'm having to lead Bible club meetings. This is weird. I don't like this, but I'm doing it because I had to. And then all of a sudden, my youth group really starts to grow and take off. This little bitty church of, um, in Cory, Indiana, with a youth group that was around five or six kids is growing. And we've got 20 to 30 students coming and just really falling in love with who Jesus is. Sometimes 40 to 50 on Youth Sunday nights. We just Our friends were coming in, and, and there was exciting stuff going on. And in the middle of that, I was, I was one of the leaders who was kind of a part of that core five or six. And, and I was being put into situations that I was a little uncomfortable with, but I was a part of them. And I was growing. And all of a sudden, uh, somebody asked me, hey, we have this youth Sunday night service at the last Sunday of the month. Would you be willing to speak? Mm, terrible idea. No, I think that's a bad idea. You shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. 
No, seriously, I want to encourage you. I think you could do it. And so I got up. I worked on notes. I worked on passages that were meaningful to me. And for 45 minutes, I rambled on terribly, uh, sharing my faith and sharing my story. But it was like realizing all of a sudden that wasn't all that bad. It was kind of fun. And I got a lot of encouragement, even though I know for a fact that it was terrible. I got a lot of encouragement and support and people who were pushing me forward. And I started to realize all of a sudden, even though I had ignored this calling, that back in the summer before my senior year, I had gone to this conference in Toronto. And in the midst of that conference, sitting in the Air Canada Center where the Toronto Maple Leafs play hockey, worshiping God with a bunch of other students, I heard this calling in the back of my head, this voice say, what about youth ministry? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, that'd be fun. Like, I would love to support and encourage students like this. I would love to be engaged in these kind of things, but I couldn't do that. And so I dismissed it. But later on, late in my senior year, I'm sitting here, in my, literally in my closet one night with the lights on because my stepbrother and I shared a room and he's asleep. So I'm sitting in there reading my Bible, praying, and God reminds me, hey, you remember whenever you ignored me when I said that? I said, you noticed the things that have happened since then? Like, do you recognize the ways that I've been changing you? And I started to go, oh, that's funny. Because <laughs> I'm not scared anymore of that stuff. And those things don't seem like a big deal anymore. And wow. Like, I think I could actually do that. And so I started to make plans. I started to pray through it. And my, my dad wasn't honestly excited about the idea at first. He thought I needed to go find a job that would actually support me and pay financially and take care of my family and all that kind of stuff. And everything I'm reading in Scripture says that that's not the way God's people operated. Like, we stepped out on faith and God would provide. And, and I'm saying, Dad, I think it'll be okay. And, and he's trying to encourage me other ways. And every time I tried to you know, kind of give some credit to those thoughts and to that encouragement. I just felt not at peace. And I said, God, I said, Dad, I think I, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I pursued this degree in ministry. I went to Olivet for a while. I ended up transferring through another circumstances, set of circumstances where I had to trust God and take a step of faith. And he led me to another place north of here called Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And that's where I graduated, got a degree continue to grow and develop a faith of my own and understanding of who God had designed me to be and created me to be. And all of these struggles throughout my life and my parents' divorce and all the other things that happened in my life that were creating and instilling in me all of these things that I needed to be exactly who God had called me to be. And here I am today, standing with you, talking about this idea of what it is God's continuing to do in me. Because that process isn't over. Once upon a time, I thought I would forever and always be a youth pastor. And he's very clearly in the last three years been teaching me that's not the case. That he has more in store for me. Because I never saw myself as anything other than that. And he's continued to develop and build in me this sense of who he's called me to be and what he wants me to accomplish and how he wants to use me. And there is no fear, there is no excuse, there is no anything that can stand in the way of what God desires to accomplish in your life if you just let it go. If you trust him and say, the things that I just can't seem to see past, the fears and the worries and the concerns of what could be, all the scenarios of what might happen, all those images that are in Moses' mind about, they may kill me. Like you recognize they may immediately kill me on sight. I have to stop looking at those and I have to start looking past to say, it doesn't matter if they kill me. It doesn't matter because I'm supposed to die to myself daily anyway. It doesn't matter if they make fun of me or persecute me or laugh at me. It doesn't matter anymore. What matters is am I serving 
my God with all of my heart? Am I building his kingdom and accomplishing his goals? Am I, are my eyes set on what he wants me to achieve? Or am I set on what I want to achieve? And all of a sudden, the fears, the anxieties, the desires of self, all the things have to be set aside, and I have to look and say, God, where is it you're leading? Because wherever it is you're leading, there is nothing that can stop me. If I put my hope and my trust in you, if I rely on your spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that is alive and at work within us. And if he can raise Christ from the dead and save all of our souls, why couldn't he accomplish so much more through us? In fact, he even says, you've seen me accomplish great things, but I'm going to send one after me who's going to work in you and you'll accomplish even greater things. Imagine what else could happen through you if you just put your hope and your trust in me. And so this morning, I I know the band's going to come back up and we're going to wrap up our time together, but I want you to wrestle with this question this morning. What is it that you feel like God has been calling you to? What is it you feel like is going to be really challenging, but you know is beneficial to the kingdom? What are the fears that are overwhelming you and keeping you from taking steps forward? And how is it that you need to lay yourself down, just like Moses did in that moment, with your face hidden and your shoes off in that holy and sacred place, and wrestle with him and say, God, I'm really scared about A, B, C, D, and E. Could you please send someone else? God's not wanting to send someone else. He's wanting to send you because you're his people. And he wants to accomplish amazing things through you because you're his people. Not all of us are going to part the Red Seas and lead the Israelites out of Egypt through this amazing, miraculous story that lasts on forever throughout history. But some of us may be leading our neighbor to Christ, which will make all the difference in the world. Because every number that's added to the kingdom is an incredible victory because Scripture tells us that God's desire is that all would come to know him. He doesn't desire for us to forget about anyone. He's the one who leaves the 99 to chase after the one. He is the good shepherd who has a heart and a concern for everyone, but a desire to see his kingdom grow in a way that glorifies him, not the kingdom itself, not the people and the body and the building and the church and the structure and all of the things that we've built here. Those are not what he's building. He's building a name for himself. And so if we move forward with a desire to bring glory to him, if we move forward with a desire to surrender all to him, what he can accomplish through us is unstoppable. And so today I ask you, what is it that's keeping you from being able to see God's desired future for you? What are the fears and the anxieties and the concerns and the worries that are stopping you from moving forward? The fears are real. The emotions and the heartache are real. But ultimately God wants to take us somewhere to build his kingdom and to declare his name before all people. And he wants to use us to do it. So this morning I'll ask you to stand. And if you want to pray, I think we're going to sing, I assume. Yeah, we're going to sing. If you want to pray, I would be more than happy to pray with you, but I also understand that I'm a complete stranger. And sometimes talking about our fears is a very intimate thing. And so there's someone in this room who you know that cares for you, that would love to wrestle through that with you. Even if that's just finding someone you have good relationship with and asking them, could you be praying for me in this? Because I'm consumed with this fear and I just need to overcome it. And so if we would, let's bow our heads. If you need to pray, I'll be here. Um, But uh, let's surrender our hearts to him this morning. Father, I love you and I thank you so much for your heart and for your love for us and for your promises to us. And I thank you for this story of encouragement that tells us that no matter what we face in this life, you can overcome it. That whatever fears or anxieties we carry in with us, some of them are very rational and real, but some of them 
are just in our imagination. The threats are not as real as we might think they are, especially when we walk along with you. So, Father, I pray that you would send us out to be your people to accomplish your goals in this place. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.